Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, everybody. It's Montel, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I'm really excited to get an opportunity to talk to my guest today because my guest today is the co-founder and managing director of Poseidon Asset Management, one of the longest-running dedicated cannabis investment companies funds in the country. She is also a board member of the Marijuana Policy Project and also Athletes for Care and the Initiative. Emily Pixia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Look, look. Uh, yeah, I know a little bit about your history. You grew up in the era of uh, D.A.R.E. And uh, as a matter of fact, I understand your parents were kind of like the hippie types. Your father can be seen in a picture listening to Jimi Hendrix play the national anthem, right, at Woodstock. That's correct. You can actually see him in the movie, too. He was sitting up on the wall. So it's pretty cool. That's well. So you grew up with the, in, a, in a household that utilize cannabis, but they were kind of anti-cannabis when it came to your children, their children, right? Correct. Yeah. I think that they believed in, you know, the benefits of cannabis and thought it was enjoyable, just like anybody could enjoy alcohol. And, uh, but I think at the same time, they felt like modeling for us with cannabis or alcohol was something to teach us that it was for more adults and not something for kids. And I guess back then in the day, they were still looking at cannabis as being some sort of gateway drug, right? Yeah. You know, I think that was, you know, at the height of the, you know, war on drugs and this concept that cannabis is a gateway to it. I think a lot of misunderstandings exist around where it sits in this world because of the hysteria around it and that crazy movie, you know, reefer madness. So sure. Sure. And so, I mean, did you ever have conversations with your family about, or your parents about cannabis back in that time? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I remember our father said that he, you know, he was like, I don't use it anymore. Well, because it was illegal too in New York state. So it's not something your parents are going to volunteer that they participated in an illegal act around their children. But I remember our father saying that cannabis had changed from when he was younger. And so be careful because it's very strong. And he even further offered that that's why he used to grow his own because it was, and it's interesting because now that we live in this um, more regulated cannabis world, there's a lot of emphasis on understanding the testing and regulations around the potency and the constituents of the plant where he was already trying to go for that by growing his own and controlling the strength of the product he was consuming. Right. That's, that's, that's a good kind of a foundation to have. And then I guess you grew up, you know, didn't, you weren't thinking about getting into the cannabis business as you got older. No, I mean, as far as I understood it, especially growing up in New York state, going to college in New York state, working in Boston, living and working in New York, it's, it wasn't legal. And so to me, it was something that, you know, I was afraid to even get caught having on my person, let alone making a business around it. So Sure. And so what made you and your brother decide to, you know, shift gears in the, in the middle of the stream and say, hmm, I think this cannabis industry might be something I could get into. And especially thinking about it from the standpoint of putting together, you know, a, a asset management fund. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I remember a few key moments where I realized that this industry was really starting to become something that you could participate in from a business standpoint. I remember I was driving over the go- or riding in the car over the Golden Gate Bridge and I saw advertisements in this publication I was flipping through. I think it was seven by seven 
which is a San Francisco focused publication. And it was uh, advertising for local dispensaries. And so then I started to, I was like, what, this is legal like this here, you can actually advertise for it. And I knew there was a medical program, but I didn't understand there was actual commerce around it. So I started to dig in further on that. And that was in 2011, I started to understand the history of it, which is so rich and deep here in the Bay Area and also in Northern California with our long history of cultivation. But uh, started to really understand that. And then went, I went by one of the local stores, which is called Apothecarium. It's a beautiful store. It looks more like a boutique hotel or a cafe. And I saw people lined up outside to get in. And I thought I had come from a world of consulting where brick and mortar retail was contracting. And here it is, people lining up to get into a store to, pro- to purchase products. And by the way, in, in the stigma that's established around cannabis, this was people who looked like any one of us. It was like ordinary people. Cannabis. Yeah. What year was this? That was 20, 2011, 2012. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been involved in the cannabis industry now since 2012, well, since 2000, really officially. I mean, I came out with my own personal use around 2001 and I've been literally working with, you know, some of the same organizations you've worked with MPP and, you know, uh, others, to move forward, you know, medical initiatives across the country. I work in New York, Connecticut, uh, Maine, and uh, across the country, trying to make sure that people understood that, you know, individuals had a personal right to a conversation with their doctor, unfettered by anybody else's opinion. So that's why it got me involved in it. So you're looking at the stores and you're going, hmm, there's something going on here I think I might want to be a part of, right? Yeah, I mean, we believed in it from the standpoint that I, I just thought it was fundamentally wrong, that the status of it. Once you start to understand the history around this, it's it's hard to kind of walk that back and really get comfortable with what's happened. It's so terrible. And and so and then I, I should also share, of course, that both of our parents passed away from cancer. And so this notion of cannabis for palliative care came up pretty early in our lives. I was 15, actually, when it, it came up into my life. And so we had that compassionate lens. We started to talk about what it would look like to participate. And, and one of the things that we understood about the industry was from a business standpoint, it was under-resourced. There wasn't a lot of investment dollars. It was underbanked. It still is underbanked. And so that's where we thought we could come into the space and, and contribute and help to build businesses, which has been tremendously rewarding. And rewarding, but at the same time, it's got to be daunting, especially when you're dealing in an industry that has federal laws that are so contradictory. You know, you've got a federal government on one hand that has been dispensing cannabis itself for the last 60 years through a program at the University of Mississippi. You've got a federal government that has its own patents on cannabinoids. You've got a federal government that has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in research in places like Israel, University of Mississippi, and at the same time, that same federal government turns around and says that this is a substance that has no medical value when it actually in its own abstract to its application for patent states how medically efficacious it is. This had to be something that drove you crazy, right? Yeah, it's still, it's, it is kind of a re- reality distortion field, what has gone on on the federal level around cannabis. And also, even just to this day, when you look at how they've allocated resources from a medical research standpoint, they're always looking for how cannabis is harmful. They're not looking for the benefits of it. So it's, it's completely, it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance to think that they've got these patents to your exact point. 
and especially in the locations that they do, and that they've held it back from the public. And so now we have this insane opioid issue, which is, by the way, ramping during the time of COVID. And you have people suffering from all of the side effects from all these pharmaceutical products when cannabis could provide wonderful resources around this. And not to mention the kids, too, with the epileptic children it's absolutely but but when you look at the fact that our government did fund research in israel under dr mishulam that actually verified and validated all of the efficaciousness of the plant and literally even gave him their highest drug award nida gave him their highest drug award i think it was back in you know uh maybe 2008 2009 nida gave rafael mishulam one of the highest awards that this country has to give foreign drugs, and yet they still have the audacity to claim that it doesn't work? Uh, yep, Ra- it's not rational. Right. Yeah. So I guess that must have been the same attitude that people had, a not rational attitude when you decided to step into the fray and say, I'd like to build a fund to support cannabis companies. Why don't you talk, talk about that lineage, talk about the history of that. Right. So I called my brother. We come from a bit of an entrepreneurial background. Our father had his own business. And so I think we we always had an inclination to think about how to have a family business. And so we started talking about it. And he was the one who actually conceived of the notion of the, the fund structure. And so we put that together and it was incredibly difficult. So this is now 2012 that we're really starting to put this all together. Um, finding you know, service providers to even work with us on this was extremely challenging. We got, you know, borderline laughed out of rooms, actually did once get laughed out of a room. That was Why don't you tell that story? Because I thought that was really very interesting, very funny. <laughs> Where we a guy trying to write, uh, what are you going to smoke, smoke your, your paperwork, something like that? What do you say? Yeah, we were at this venture in, investor summit down in, in Silicon Valley, which a lot, you know, it's, it's the home of Apple. Think different. And, we were down in this room and there were, I don't know, a hundred plus investors. And um, there were some VCs from, you know, City and some of the main corporate VCs up on stage. And so I asked the question about data analytics as it pertains to the cannabis industry. And one of the guys said, oh, what are you going to smoke your data? And I was like, That's not, that doesn't even make sense. It's like not even a good joke. <laughs> um, and the whole room laughed. And, you know, I always, the thing, I mean, you know, obviously it never feels great to be laughed at, but at the same time, you know, I always kind of think it's like a broken bone that mends more strongly at the point of fracture. And so I just thought, you know what, go ahead and laugh, but we're going to keep building businesses and changing the world. So we'll be laughing at you in a little while, right? But now still though, this has been an incredibly daunting space right now. Your degree is in psychiatry. Psychology? Psychology. Psychology. And, you know, that's kind of like, um, I don't know, that's almost like two different ends of a spectrum. So how does that translate into venture capitalism? Oh, I mean, everything about investing is intricately tied into psychology. So mm-hmm. on the investor side, it's understanding investors and how they feel when their capital is put to work and what their expectations are around it and how to communicate with them so that they understand and feel there's transparency and and feel safe around it. It's, it's quite an investment in an emerging market, essentially, to invest into cannabis. And so understanding that, understanding how that plays out in market cycles 
Um, it's very interesting. I mean, right now what's happening in the markets with the distortion of, you know, the COVID and it's so it's such an interesting time. But then in terms of investing into companies, so much of investing into companies, especially in a venture manner, is about investing into teams and investing into people and trying to understand really what's the motivations of those companies, of those founders, how the teams are working together, how they're viewing the market. So there's a lot of psychology actually in investing. And it's it's become incredibly, it's been incredibly useful. And then I just think that in training to study psychology, you train your analytical thinking skills, you train your ability to kind of do hypothesis testing, which is another basic factor of investing like, oh, I think I like this company. And then the next thing you do is you try to kind of take it apart and understand all the potential issues that could exist. So you can really anticipate and look around corners. So it's, it's quite tied in actually. Now, was it tough to get your first investors into your fund? It was, uh, it was a very interesting time. I mean, we were, we're we were characterized as emerging managers at that time. So that was our first fund. And to boot a first fund investing into cannabis. And so it was interesting. Our first investors were actually lawyers um, who understood the perceived risk of investing in cannabis from a legal standpoint versus the actual risk, which I thought was really astute of those uh, individuals. And then another early investor of ours actually owns a series of addiction clinics. And what I thought was interesting about him and why he wanted to invest into the sector was that he understood that he it's his belief, and this is you can hear Peter Grinspoon or Lester Grinspoon talk about this, is that cannabis is a gateway out of addiction. It's not like I did a show, I think we were the first to do it maybe three years ago, that cannabis is an exit drug for opioid addiction. And it's that way because the scientifically has been proven to block some of the receptors and the way your brain processes opioids after you have use cannabis. It's a fact now. There's research, there's peer-reviewed studies that have done. As a matter of fact, I had a, uh, did a show with Dr. Oz almost two and a half years ago discussing this before anybody was even going to bring it up. Um, it was, it's been known. And again, go back to the research that the U.S. government funded in Israel, and you'll find out that they knew this three years ago. It's absolutely right. And I remember that interview and I thought it was tremendous. And, you know, it's funny how you've, as a group, we've collected these moments throughout the time that we've been running this. So we can share it with people who still have not been reached about what it means to participate in the cannabis industry. People still call it a vice. And I'm just categorically disagree about that. And so I think that that, that the work that you've done and that these different groups have done. And, and then what's wonderful is you have the data to support it. States where they've legalized medical cannabis programs see a decline in opiate addiction rates. Same thing with Canada and their veterans population, which was an immense undertaking from the, from go as their federal legals, legalization rolled out. Yeah. Well, it's, an, it's, it's kind of insane right now. I think, you know, this is where I, I, you know, I'll get a chance to now we can discuss it. I've talked about it with almost every single guest that I've had on Let's Be Blunt, I think one of the biggest problems with our industry is that we spent so much time, so many people, not you, but I'm saying so many people jumped into this because they saw a dollar sign. So many people jumped in this because they saw an opportunity. They thought it was a green rush, but people didn't remember that this rush needs to have consumers. Consumers are who are driving the legislation that's passing. The consumers that are driving it are the baby boomers. Those people who are your age or a little older than you, way a little older than you, 
who remember that in the 60s and the 70s, they had parents that smoked or had relatives that smoked, and they turned out pretty good. So these are the people who are now sitting in legislation, legislative positions to pass cannabis laws, knowing that it's not going to be so detrimental to their society. But I think that's been one of the biggest problems in this industry is education. The majority of people do not know. We're spending so much time B2B educating and not B2C educating. And that's educating the consumer and giving them a reason why this is a good choice, though without even making an attempt at doing so, we're now noticing that during COVID, during all of this people being, you know, sequestered at home and staying at home, I think people are starting to recognize themselves that they feel a little bit better day three after having used cannabis for three days in a row than they did day three for having put down a fifth of vodka three days in a row. So that's the reason why we're starting to see, and we're still seeing cannabis sales have not shrunk during COVID. As a matter of fact, they are leveling off a little higher than we thought they'd be and higher than they were in 2019. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. That's absolutely correct. I mean, it's been a it's been a truly remarkable test to to the really the the stickiness of our industry and actually to the adoption rate of our industry. And you're I couldn't agree with you more about the industry as a whole. Two things. We we definitely need to lean in a little bit better and in a more unified fashion around policy for sure. We need to support those who are passing laws. And that's the work we've done in terms of policy work across the years. It's, it's been very important to us, but also in educating people, because I, you know, one of the things is there's a wide range of products that exist and some people have better experiences on certain aspects of them than others. And so making sure everybody feels safe, that they have access to something that's a right fit for them. It's really important. Absolutely. Now the companies that you are, your fund is mostly investing in, are they, are they, you know, complete verticals? Are they just one segment of the vertical? What are, what are you looking for? What do you look to invest in? So we've actually invested across almost the entire ecosystem because we do feel like it's, it's quite synergistic to have invested in vertically integrated operators in multiple States in multiple countries, frankly, and then to invest in the technology infrastructure that is needed to support that. So, you know, we've invested in HR tech solutions like work or data analytics selection or or companies like headset or um, point of sale retail optimization like FlowHub. All of those things really help to gel and bring the industry together. Like going back to when I first went to Apothecarium and I saw them doing a beautiful store and they were doing paper and pencil ledger And I thought these folks need support. They need to be able to have the resources that other businesses have, especially when you consider the regulatory requirements they have for reporting and also that they're forced to use 
cash a lot of times for their businesses, which is so unsafe. But I digress. But we're we're also big believers in actually the global industry. So we've also invested in, we were early investors into Canada. Now we're actually invested into Latin America, including Colombia and Mexico. And it, to your point about education, we spend a lot of times where we can in those markets, again, educating, informing, letting people understand really what the objective of a, cannab- a regulated cannabis industry is versus what the stigma has painted for them. And so now you're starting to see, now again, we're still in COVID. We haven't gotten out of this mess that we're in right now. But over the next year or so, as things hopefully we, we do see a vaccine come in place, and then even with a vaccine, you know, now we're just here starting to hear information that maybe, you know, 2024 before we even have an opportunity to vaccinate the entire population or at least 50% of the population. So we're going to be mired in this weird bubble for at least three to four more years. Are people still interested in getting into this industry? Or No, they've got to be seeing what's being written. And what's being written is this is really the only industry that's still producing tax dollars. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the GDP in the U.S. declined by 32.9% in Q2, cannabis is growing at a rate of 40% year over year. It's creating jobs, it's creating tax revenue. It is a real tangible industry and it was deemed essential across the United States. And by the way, all of those companies took that very seriously and created immense safety codes around how their businesses would operate to protect their uh, employees during that time. And so I feel like this is just an absolute growth sector. And I'm, I'm hoping that people will continue to pay attention back in March when everything was even more uncertain. It feels like a new different challenge every two weeks in this world. But in March, there was uh, in capital receded almost completely from the sector. Uh, People were very risk off. They were very fearful of what was coming next. But now that we've been deemed essential, now that we're demonstrating growth, now that the larger public companies that get a lot of um, attention in the spotlight are proving that their business models are working and working well, I think we're going to be on a path to see continued growth and more and more attention to be paid to the space. Now, what about, you know, and I've got to ask you directly, what about you know, all these social equity initiatives in every single state that are really, and I'm going to say to you, from my perspective, just a bunch of crap yeah. and a lot of BS because, you know, um, and I'm not talking about it from the standpoint of, of getting involved with people who are re-entering the workforce having already been incarcerated. But I'm talking about the fact that in lots of these states that have passed legislation for you know, legal cannabis, whether it be medical or not, they have these tenants that you have to have X amount of percentage being, you know, minority representation. And then people reach out and just hire, you know, buy a minority, you know, hire one, hire, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a person just to put a name on a contract until they get a license. And then all of a sudden that person falls off the contract. Do you see this industry really shifting into a paradigm where, maybe those goals will be legitimate and real rather than just a facade? So it's been devastating to see what's happened. And I've seen people be exploited across the board. And there are a couple of groups who have been very, very bad at it. And they left the equity applicants, not only without an operational business, but then with a financial burden around it. And so 
I think the regulators had good intentions when they created these programs, but I think that they didn't contemplate that they didn't contemplate how it would actually play out. And, and, and I, I can't fault them because I appreciate that there was an effort made there. And, and I think the intention of an action is a pretty important piece of it. What I am feeling better about is that I'm starting to see, we're kind of calling this new phase of cannabis, kind of like cannabis 2.0, just to borrow from tech. And so I am seeing operators and some of the operators we work with are actually trying to partner with some of those applicants that have been, have been kind of left in a bad position to plug them into an ecosystem and give them a platform to launch the businesses. So I think we are actually going to potentially, I'm very optimistic and hopeful that we may see some things changing around this in this next wave of operators. Um, to your exact point earlier, I think a lot of that, a lot of the bad things that happened around that were those same folks who were like, get rich, get quick, get out. The rest of the folks who are still here after the challenge and kind of the, frankly, bear market we went through as an industry for the last year leading into about June of this year, these are the folks who are interested in building businesses for the long term. So I think that there are some very real partnerships being formed now that I'm, I'm hopeful we'll, we'll start to see something improving there. But I have been really disappointed by this. And I think that the one of the things we really have to think about, and one of the groups we work with has been talking about creating microloan programs for local operators, equity applicants, to be able to get their businesses off the ground in the absence of banking and microloan support, because that's really what you need, is you need to be able to do that. So I'm seeing some things that I'm hopeful for, but it has been, it has not been good. I will say. You know, look, I mean, I got to take a little little break just to pay some bills, but uh, and then I'll come back. And you've been listening to Let's Be Blunt with Montel, where today's guest is Emily Paxia, who is the co-founder and managing director of Poseidon Asset Management Group. When we come back, I want to pick up right where we're leaving off right now. Let's talk about the things that you look for in businesses that you think about investing in. We'll take a little break. We'll be back right after this. Winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means insane props, epic bonuses, and the craziest cross-sport wagers. At MyBookie, winning season means watching live sports and betting live sports all season long. Rejoice! The NFL season has returned. That means action-packed Sundays and huge cash prizes. Get in on the action. Use promo code BEBLUNT and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play. Designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you love to bet. Bet with the best this NFL season for your chance to win big. Use promo code BEBLUNT and double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Today's guest is the co-founder and managing director of Poseidon Asset Management Group. She's been a board member of Marijuana Policy Project, Athletes for Care, and the initiative name is Emily Bixia. Emily, thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you so much for what you've already shared with us so far. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Absolutely. Look, you know, I want to ask a question about, you know, we, 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 we took a break on the whole idea of social equity programs, but what kind of companies are is your fund looking to invest in, invest in right now? So we're still deploying capital out of our second fund. And so it's pretty narrowly focused on series A or later stage companies. Um, right now we're vetting a few tech opportunities as that's one kind of half of the portfolio. And then we've just deployed into another vertically integrated operator. Um, so we're just looking to expand 
kind of, I would say depth into those areas. We like the also the single state operators that are focused on some of these more competitive or even a little bit more established markets like California. It's been a tough market to do business in, but uh, you know, I think that those who've really leaned in and have been very careful in how they manage their businesses are starting to see some of the benefits of that. Gotcha. Now, do you, I mean, just in that thought, you're talking about single state, but if you had a crystal ball, what do you think in the next year, two years? I mean, we got five new states on the ballot in November. You have 39 states and the District of Columbia right now. That would push us to 44 states and the District of Columbia. Heck, we only need six more. Come on now. I mean, this is ridiculous. There's no other law, I think, in this country that's, you know, not been changed when 90% of the states agree. But what do you think? I think that, yeah, I think I'm very optimistic for this year, by the way, because the two initiatives specifically of New Jersey and Arizona would be very important to kind of changing the landscape of, of adult use cannabis in this, in, in this the United States. I think we've got, I have to be honest, I think we've got another four, five years before we see federal legalization. Even if they did try to get something passed, I do think that, you know, implementation would take a while. So it could it could take some time, but you know I think the states are taking this matter into their own hands and are trying to build their infrastructure around it. I would feel much much better just understand you know if we could really decriminalize this in a really meaningful way so that it's just disempowering how law enforcement can exploit the laws around cannabis, and then if we can get banking support, those would be two very big things if we could change on a federal level. That would mean a lot more to me even than federal legalization. Yeah, I mean, I know the banking issue would be, I think, game changer 100%, especially because you've still got people right now, which is, I think, absolutely insane that you've got people still burying money in the desert. Without question. I mean, the fact that, you know, when I think about what our operators have to go through from a security standpoint on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not safe. And and they're, you know, paying taxes and cash. It's just, it's just not safe. And it's yeah. also... I don't understand, you know, I spent time with the CEO of the ABA, the American Banking Association, and he very, he has a lot of wisdom around this. He's like, we've created a great banking infrastructure for transparency and tracking. Why we're not using this for cannabis, it, do, it doesn't make sense. So, and I agree with him. It's just really. You, you would so far better regulate the industry. I mean, come on now, when you walk in the front door, you have to show an ID card. That's one you know, level of, of security. You show the ID card, you show the purchase, you show the tax, you pay the taxes directly. I, I just don't get it other than the fact that this is just something that I think that there's a certain segment of society that's going to try to fight no matter what because it doesn't follow the narrative that they'd like. You know, again, this has been an opportunity to keep brown and black people in prison. I mean, let's just jump right to the chase, skip all the stupid, you know, 80% of the people who've been arrested since 1937 for cannabis have been brown and black people. This is a way to have slavery in this century. And now we're finally in a century that maybe we'll probably try to put slavery behind us forever. I hope so. And, and it is one of those things that when you look at the history of it, talk, I mean, yes, it's, it's extraordinarily bad the way it's been exploited to do that. And, you know, here, without, without using, you don't have to give out the name, but tell me one of your success stories in investment. You know, you've got to have a company that's your shining light. 
Uh, you don't have to give their name, but you gotta give us an example. Was that a completely vertical company? Was it one small company? What was it? What was your, what's been your best investment so far? Um, you know, I mean, we, we're definitely not at the finish line, and but I'm very, I'm so very proud of so many of our companies. I mean, one of them has been um, this company called Headset because they really have been bringing data to light in the industry, and it's real time, it's clean, and and there's a lot of buzz around data, but to me, what's most important is that it that it is clean and it's and it's it can drive insights. And I think for a long time we've all been kind of making our best guesses around what might happen. And cannabis evolves so quickly that if it's not real time, it's it's very difficult to understand the trends. I mean, someone may have thought that cannabis could have been decreasing along with you know the decrease of everything back in March, but we were we immediately saw the ramping of cannabis sales, and and it was great even too. Like the first day we saw the stimulus checks clear, psh, cannabis spike, and it was like this whole thing that we were able to track in real time. So going through such a time of uncertainty, that was like a compass. Um, I would say another one would be one of our operators here in California, which is called Spark, and it's partially because they have such strong roots in the history of a medical cannabis program and their roots are right here in the bay area and they've they were one of the first to have a biodynamic farm in sonoma and so they've just really leaned in on that and then furthermore they're one of the groups i would say are leaning in on creating partnerships with equity applicants to help leverage with their existing vertical platform um and so that those applicants can even have their own brands powered by their back end so it's a it's a really it feels like a really authentic partnership. So I really like that. And then of course, you know, we've got, oh, there's so many, I'm so proud of all of our founders because frankly, they've all been hardworking people who've been building businesses and in spite of all of the challenges we've been discussing. But Green Thumb Industries would be a well-known one for the public sector, their GTI. I've known them for years. Actually, the CFO was at my wedding back in the day. And so um, it's been neat to watch your people who've become friends also build businesses that are now internationally recognized. And you're working again, mostly in California. You're not spreading out across the other 39 states yet, or do you have interest in multi-states? We do. We have a, we have a couple of multi-state operators that we're in. We're in like Terrasen, GTI, Ascend Wellness Holdings. Um, you know, we've got a lot of reach there. So we are pretty well branched out across the U.S., but we as a firm are based in, in Northern California. Now, you're involved in an organization called The Initiative. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Initiative is? The Initiative is really cool. Um, so one of the things that we did not want to follow in the path of tech was that the technology industry has notoriously been a very male-skewed industry in terms of founders or at least the, man the management levels of the businesses. Um, so the initiative put together basically a female accelerator program to kind of incubate and help female founded businesses get to the next step. And so I was on the board of that. My dear friend and colleague, Amy Margolis, who's a leader in the space, put that together. And um, we've seen two co cohorts go through that. Of course, this year got a little bit disrupted with, with COVID, but the initiative has this beautiful space in Portland called the commune. And it's really a place too where people can come together and, and really work together to build the industry. But out of the initiative, they've run two wonderful women's uh, kind of weekend uh, boot camps. One of them was called females to the front, which actually was last weekend this year in Palm Springs. And it was 300 women. It was oversold and it was seriously one of the most productive kind of boot camp work 
weekends I've ever experienced and such a done virtually or was it done in person? It was all in person last year. This year, I, I don't know what we'll end up doing, but it was we were supposed to have it again because it was such a success. Okay. And then you're also on the board of Athletes for Care. What's that all about? Very cool organization. I'm so grateful to get to participate. Um, it's So it's basically founded by athletes who really felt like the the world had kind of left them behind, especially as they retired from sports and they've come out of it with such serious injuries and head trauma, and then didn't have a lot of guidance for how to safely take care of themselves. And there was, there are many stories of opiate addiction. And I've met some of the athletes, you know, life partners or wives or spouses, and they've shared stories about how cannabis has helped them to get off of opiates and to basically return the person that they love to them because you know, when you're addicted to things, you become kind of all over the place and are very unpredictable. And, and so, I mean, some of these stories are absolutely remarkable. And I did not, frankly, I did not understand what happened to pro athletes after their careers kind of wind down, but hearing their stories and hearing how cannabis has helped them in their kind of next path and to find new ways to, you know, have jobs and generate, you know, income for their families, but also to be healthy is something that's been really important to me. So have learned a lot on that. And it's been great to kind of be a participant and try to support it. And so we're putting together, you know, we're doing a lot this year and putting together uh, some scientific uh, advisory board members and, and really leaning in on that project. It's, it's incredible. Well, but I also think that, you know, one of the things that the athletes can do is, is explain the fact that there's nothing wrong with them using cannabis while they actually participate in their sports. I know that, you know, in the MMA and football and a lot of contact sports, especially where there's a lot of contact, head contact, you know, a lot of these guys recognize by having done some studies themselves, they see the benefit and the neural protection that they can get from various forms of cannabinoids while they play, even if it's just a matter of taking CBD while you're out on the field and having an extra amount of CBD in your system. There is some anti-inflammatory capability there that might not necessarily be 100% prophylactic, but literally does help. It's absolutely true. And I think that that's, that's really one of the goals of the organization is to try to tie that through into the earlier um, aspects of while you're actually in the leagues and helping to educate and inform because, you know, our athletes are our heroes. And so I think that if you can stand up and say, look at what I've done and cannabis is a part of my health and wellness routine and Look at how well I've done. You know, it's just it's just a key part of of to your point earlier, educating everyone about what this means. And that's one of the things I think. Again, we've got to. I don't know how we convince this. I've spoken in multiple, you know, national, international forums on cannabis, and I try to emphasize it every time I walk in the room. And that is education, education, education. That's what's going to help change and affect the laws in three years. That's what how we're going to move this entire industry forward. But we have so many that are so reluctant to do it. I don't understand why. I know it was something when we started putting this together. Um, and, you know, you have to swallow some humble pie when people, you know, constantly make comments or kind of deride what you're doing. But we thought the only way we can do this is to, to live it and to show it and to be it and to get out there and talk about it or else what are we doing? And so, I mean, it when we used to be able to go to cocktail parties or even parties or whatever, 
there would always be a bunch of people who wanted to talk to me about what we're doing. And, you know, at first I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to always be talking about work when I'm out in a social setting. But then I thought, no, 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 this is, this is it. This is a part of who I am and I'm committed to this all the way through. And so even those cocktail conversations, those are how things are spread. People go back and share with their other friends about it. So it's, it's sure. kind of the onus is on us. If people wanted to reach out and get some more information about you, where do they go? What website do they go up on? Uh, www.poseidon.partners. www.poseidon.partners. Okay, good. And, you know, what would be you know, that recommendation you would have for people, let's say, who have a startup right now and they're looking for some funds? What would they do? What do they have to do before they even pick up the phone or, or, or type in your website? What should they do to know that you're looking for from them? Yep. I mean, we're looking for founders who are here to build not just a business, but to build an industry. And so if that's what a founder is doing and they're interested in, it's not, we're very quick to weed out the get rich quick kind of sentiment around it. But if they're really, if founders are genuinely interested, even if it's not a fit for our fund, we often send them to other groups that are maybe a better fit for what they're, I just did it this morning with a company who reached out. So, and are there other, I mean, I know there's other funds, but I mean, is it, is that industry, is that part of the industry growing also the fund industry? You know, I think it, it will be again. I think a lot of investors wisely put a pause in if they were going to start raising a fund back in Q1 of this year, I think they hit pause because everything was so uncertain, but I do anticipate we'll see more and more funds coming for a while. You, and you had it so right on the head. There was this group who came in, they were just get rich quick. And we saw them come in and then they washed right back out because you know what? They weren't interested in the mission. And I feel like you have to have that interest in order to stay committed. And you have to believe in the product. There's a lot of people who just believe in the money of the product and don't really care about the product. And that, that weeds you out immediately, I think. I think you, you fall by the wayside quickly if you don't believe. And if you don't have in your heart of heart, I get but right now, everyone's looking to tomorrow and thinking that it's going to be the adult use states that are going to make a lot of money. No, it's not. We need to get a grip. This company, country has to understand, and everybody in the industry has to understand, that for 5,000 years, this product has been used. And it's been mostly used over that 5,000 years as a geriatric kind of formula. You know, it's been most of, in societies, go back 3,000 years ago, and look in China, go and look in Israel over the last thousand years, look in the Middle East. It's been mostly older people who have used this as a medical remedy, and that's what's kept it alive. So why don't we use history and recognize that that should be the direction we're going in right now? Yes. And it's also the older, it's the baby boomers right now that are passing the legislation because they are now the legislators who remember, oh, my brother smoked pot and he was okay. So now they became a, a state senator or a congressman, and they said, well, you know what? Marijuana is not that bad. They're the ones passing the laws. It's not the 19 and 20-year-olds that are looking for the highest high they can get. I agree. I agree. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I, that's my soapbox, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay on it. Okay, it's been really great talking to you today, Emily, and I, I really want to say you have a home here wherever you want, whenever you want. Give out your website one more time so people know where to go. www.poseidon.partners. Well, if you want to get more information about Poseidon Assets, make sure you go up on their website. And if you want to get more information just about cannabis, be a part of 
let's be blunt with Montel. We try to bring you the most up-to-date information that we can all the time to help you satisfy all your needs in the cannabis space. Thank you, Emily, for being a part of the show today. Make sure you tune in to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.